Yes. Uh, so if you guys get a chance, go ahead and say hi. <laughs> so fun. Uh, say hi to the Bradleys after service and uh, encourage them, pray for them, and uh, be part of Kid Town because that's a part of how we serve this family as well. So plug for Kid Town. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and invite Savannah to come up. Savannah is our reader this morning. Uh, so Savannah is going to be reading for us out of the book of John. This is John 9, verses 1 through 12. So if you have your Bibles, uh, feel free to flip there. It will also be, uh, be up on the screen for us, and you can follow along. Yep. All right, John 9, 1 through 12. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sent this man or his parents? that he was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And then he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you've sent your son uh, into our world to be the light of the world. Lord, while he's not here physically present with us, we know that he sits at your right hand, Lord, ruling and reigning over this world, uh, that he has sent his Holy Spirit to be in our hearts and in this place, uh, illuminating uh, our world and our lives for us. And so we, we pray that you would do that this morning. We trust that as light of the world, you would be lighting up our darkness this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So all throughout the passage this morning, uh, we have got, we've got people asking questions, right? The disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born like this? This man's friends ask him, is it really you, right, who have been healed, who have been uh, made able to see? And what we see in these questions is that there are all kinds of ways and motivations that we bring when we ask questions, aren't there? Like one of the things we're talking a lot about in my house is that there's a difference between a curious question and an argumentative question. And the word why uh, can be used to ask both kinds. It can be a curious, I want to understand, or it can be a way of just starting an argument. Why can I not have an otter pop? Yes. Uh, that questions often expose our presuppositions, right? The disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he be born like this? Well, this tells us a lot about the disciples' worldview, doesn't it? Even their desire to be proved right. There are all kinds of motivations that we have when we bring, uh, when we, bring, when we ask questions. And what we've been talking about all throughout this sermon series is that God welcomes those questions. That's what we've been practicing when we ask, like we're going to ask in a second, don't worry. What questions do you have about this passage? Um, so we're going to ask that again. What questions do you have about this passage? What are you curious about from this passage? And again, what we're flexing here is that muscle of being curious. 
And if it turns out that there's a little bit of argumentative mixed up in your question as well, great, bring that too. Right, that this place on Sunday mornings in our small groups throughout the week in this community, that what we're establishing is that it is a safe place to ask our questions. So what questions do you have about our passage this morning? Does everyone have to sin to be blind? How do they know he was born blind? Does God afflict us so he can display his works? Yeah. If, if these kinds of healings show God's glory, why doesn't he heal more people like this now? Yeah, what is what Jesus is saying? The darkness, when I'm gone, I can't work. What is what is that about? Oh, guys, there's one that's just staring us in the face, right? What about the mud? What is this whole thing? What is the mud situation? Why does Jesus spit on the ground and put mud on his eyes to heal him? all kinds of questions in this passage. And what we're going to focus on today is this claim in verse 5 that Jesus makes that he is the light of the world. And we're going to use this kind of theme that Jesus pulls on here, being the light of the world, to understand, well, what is the light of the world? What does that look like in our lives, in our own lives? And what does it look like for us to participate with Jesus as the light of the world? Jesus is the light of the world. What does that light look like in our own lives, and how do we participate with it? So verse 5, uh, it says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So here, jo- Jesus is making a pretty, uh, a pretty stupendous claim, isn't he? I am the light of the world. And the way that the book of John is set up is it's a book where Jesus uh, makes these seven very kind of bold claims. I'm the light of the world, I'm the resurrection and the life, I'm the true vine, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's got seven of them spread throughout John's gospel. So it's a book of Jesus' claims of these I am statements. But then it's also a book of signs is another way that John describes his gospel. And these signs confirm the claims that Jesus makes. So the signs that Jesus does, the miracles that he does, confirm the claims that Jesus makes. So, for example, Jesus says before he, or Jesus says, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and then he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. No, I think he says, I'm the, resurre- the resurrection and the life, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. That by the sign of raising Lazarus, what he does is he's proving his claim that he's the resurrection and the life. And this passage right here where Jesus says, I am the light of the world, what we see when he opens the eyes of this man who's born blind is Jesus verifying his claim that he's the light of the world. So these, the sign and the claim go together. And this claim, I am the light of the world, was made for the first time back in John eight twelve. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever, whoever follows me will not w- walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Jesus makes this claim. Okay, I think the setting of this is cool and also important. Okay, so uh, there's this feast in Jerusalem called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And so all these people from around kind of the Mediterranean world, all of these uh, Jewish people, all of these God-fearing people, all of these converts to Judaism, they all flood into Jerusalem. And for a week, they all live in tents, essentially. 
And what it commemorates, what it points them back to is this time that God led his people out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness and to the promised land. And during that time, they lived in booths. And so during this ceremony, during this, this week of kind of celebration, they remember that by living in booth, by camping out all in and around Jerusalem themsel- themselves. And scholars kind of disagree on this. We're not exactly sure. But on the first night of this uh, week-long celebration, there is this moment where in the, in the court of the temple, so there's this temple in Jerusalem, and there is this space where kind of everyone could gather. There are these four massive lamps that were lit up. And there is this orchestra made up of all of kind of the priests of the time, and they were all playing instruments, and they were celebrating. And then men would take torches, and they would dance around, all around this colonnade, this court, uh, around the temple. And what scholars disagree on is, was this only the first night, or was it all of the nights of the celebration? And, and what they were doing by lighting up the night was remembering how God had led them in a pillar of fire all throughout their time in the wilderness. So they were remembering, but they were also looking forward. Because all throughout the prophets, right, these, these people who spoke for God to the nation of Israel, there is this growing hope that God was going to send a true and a better light to his people. The prophet Isaiah says it like this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And so this whole kind of week-long celebration was about remembering the ways that God had brought light and looking forward to the ways that God was going to bring light. And in the middle of that celebration, Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. He says this whole ceremony that we have, this whole celebration, it actually points to me. It finds its fulfillment in me. That's a really bold claim, isn't it? Can you imagine standing there when Jesus claimed that? I kind of suck all the air out of the room. What? Who is this guy? I am the light of the world. And the promise is not only that he's the light of the world, but that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the rest of John 8 and into John 12, we've got two chapters that are devoted to all of the conversation and the signs that come out of this one statement. And what Jesus is doing in verses 4 and 5, when he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. What he's saying is, I'm going to show you that I'm the light of the world by healing this man who's been born blind. I'm going to verify my claim. But having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with a saliva. Then he anointed, anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And all of these kind of arguments ensue uh, where there are people who are trying to verify first, is this really the man? Was he really born blind? Because it seems unbelievable that someone who was born this way would be able to be made to see. And once the claim is verified, what people are trying to do is to avoid its implications. 
whether it's the religious leaders or kind of the common people of the day, what they're all resisting is this idea that because Jesus has healed this man, that it means that he's the light of the world because that would shake their entire worldview. And this is what the man himself says. He's being questioned about who is this Jesus? What has he done? Why has he done this? How has he done this? And the man says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That Jesus indeed is the light of the world. And this sign, uh, it still confronts us. And it confronts us and it it asks us to admit that the world that we live in is a dark place. That's why everyone is resisting Jesus' claims. The idea that there's someone who's bringing light into the world, bringing life, that's that's a great thing, right? But to admit that there's light that has come into the world means that the world was dark without it. That our world is not merely a, a, a neutral moral ground. Know that the world is full of darkness, full of suffering, full of evil, that it's all around us. We were reminded of that this week. Right, thinking about the shootings that have been in the news. And we want to talk about those things like they're isolated, like they're rare, like they're abnormal. And, and in the heinousness of them, yes, they're, they're set apart. They're different from the way that we experience our day-to-day life. And yet what they remind us of is that we live in a world that is dark. And that without light coming to us, that we're trapped, that we're deceived, that we're entangled in ways of thinking that have no connection to reality. That what we're forced to admit by wrestling with Jesus' claim that he's the light of the world is that left to ourselves and our own devices that we're blind. That our very best philosophies are nothing more than uh, a kid playing Marco Polo where there's actually no cheating, right? where you can't open your eyes at all, you can't see anything. And it's into that world of darkness that Jesus has come and has said, I am in this world not only to light it up, but I'm in, I'm, I've come to light it up and through that to bring life to you. That in the same way that this man who was blind from birth received his sight, so, uh, so he's brought light into the world to open our spiritual eyes. That we'd be able to see the world and see ourselves and see him for who he truly is. And that when he opens our eyes, what happens is that we see Jesus uh, as beautiful, as good, and as true, as a God who's deserving of our worship. It brings light to our darkness. It brings life to our lives. Well, how does that work? I want to talk some about the disciples and their, and their question here. So the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? But they give Jesus this A or B, right? And what Jesus says is green. It's not just none of the above. He, he moves into a totally different category with them. 
It was not that this man sinned or his parents. And Jesus is not saying, by the way, that this man was perfect or that his parents were perfect. What Jesus is saying is that you cannot draw a one-to-one correlation between someone's sin and the way that suffering works its way out in their lives. Now Jesus says you're using the totally, a totally wrong frame to address this situation. But what we see in the disciples is what's so often true in us is that when we encounter suffering in this world, uh, it's often, it's almost too hard for us to handle. And so we find kind of all kinds of ways from getting around it, or ways to get around it. And you see that even in their questions. So they're walking along through Jerusalem and they see a man who's begging, who's been born blind, and they are moved not with compassion, but to ask an intellectual question. So why is it this way? Which is a way so often in my life, I think in our lives, of pushing away the pain of engaging in somebody else's suffering. They don't move toward him, they step back and they judge him. Yeah, what we see in them is a question that, or is what happens so often in, in our own questioning, is not only does our, do our questions uh, insulate us from the suffering of our world, right? But they can also be a way of arguing. That what's under their question of uh, who sinned, this man or his parents, what they're asking is why. Why is it like this? And again, I, God dignifies our curiosity wherever it comes from. But I know what is so often true in my own life is the question why is a question that's about uh, control. Right, because if I can figure out why something is the way it is, I can, I can control the outcome. It's all about cause and effect and understanding cause and effect relationships, right? Why did I get the bonus that I got at work? Because if I can understand that, I can make sure I do that thing again so I can control the outcome. Why did my boss yell at me? Also a good thing to know, because I want to avoid that ever happening again, right? That we're always trying to understand these cause and effect relationships. And so why can be a way of us trying to uh, assert or gain control over our lives, over our stories. So when the disciples say, is it A or is it B? And Jesus says green. What he's doing is he's blowing up their paradigm. It was not this man that sinned or his parents that the works of God might be displayed in him. What Jesus is saying is that there is something, uh, he, he doesn't engage them in the question of the origin of evil. What he does is admits that there is evil and suffering in this world, but highlights for them that his work has, is to come and bring healing and power into those places. That he's come into all of the darkness and suffering and evil that's in our world. And what he's come to do is to bring healing and life into those places. And that that reality is more important than the answer to our questions of why. That Jesus shows up with this man and moves toward him with compassion. That while the disciples are content to stand away and judge him, to cast blame and try to figure out what is going on here. Jesus draws near to him, up into the grit, literally, and the grime of his life and and has compassion on him, engages with him, and brings healing to him. That's the character of our Jesus. That's the agenda behind his power, his healing. 
what it reminds me of is this. Okay, have you guys ever heard of kintsugi? This, this is a Japanese art form. Okay, uh, so <laughs> I've been kind of I've been nerding on, on it a little bit this week. So just go with me here. Okay, so the legend is is that this developed in 15th century Japan. There is this shogun or kind of military leader who had this teapot from China, and the teapot got cracked. He was obviously very upset about that, so he sent it back to China for repairs, which I'm like, that really puts my frustration with mail mailing things back to Amazon into perspective, right? You've got to send it across the ocean to get it repaired in China. It comes back, and he's so disappointed that they've somehow used clips to put it back together. I don't know how that works, but he was, he was not pleased with the repair that they made. And so he told people, hey, his advisors, we've got to find a better way to repair this teapot. And so what they did is they filled in the cracks of the teapot with some kind of, with like with a lacquer, with a resin, and then they painted gold over the cracks. They mixed it in with the resin. And so uh, in the cracks of the teapot, instead of seeing seams, what they saw was gold. And this started to become its own art form to the point where a century or two later, there are stories of people deliberately breaking uh, pieces of glassware so that they could be remade into these pieces of art. This kintsugi, it means golden joinery or golden repair. And the mending, this is, uh, it says the mending method honors the history of the broken object, accentuating it rather than hiding it. It's an art form born from Japanese philosophy it has to do with the feeling of regret when something valuable has been wasted. I've got a video here. Can we, can we pull up this video of this kind of inaction? So people are taking this art form and applying it in all kinds of uh, novel ways. And so this is, uh, this is a piece of art done by the, by the artist Victor Solomon in, uh, in Los Angeles. I was looking at pictures of, the ba of that basketball court all week. It's so beautiful. They're taking this dilapidated, run-down uh, basketball court and made it into a work of art. And, and what this passage is pointing us to is that that is the way that our Jesus delights and desires to work in our lives. But in the places in our own lives that... Um, Let's ask this instead. Where in, where in your life uh, do you experience or know the reality of your own brokenness? 
Where does that show up for you? What are the places that you are aware uh, of the cracks? Of the ways that you've been shattered? School? Yeah, I'm thinking it could be uh, it could be in your in, in your depression, right? In anxiety, in addiction, uh, in the places where sin kind of raises and rears its head, raises and rears its head in your life. That's greed or envy, right? we're all aware of and familiar with the places of brokenness in our own hearts. And that what, what this passage uh, teaches us is that those are the very places that Jesus delights and desires to show up and do his work. Those are the places that the power of God shines in us. Those are the places the power of God shows up and makes us beautiful that we all have a desire to participate in beauty, to be made, to be seen as beautiful. And what this is telling us is that it's in the very places of our brokenness that Jesus delights and desires to show up and to make us beautiful. And that what comes to shine through those cracks is, is him. And so we're made beautiful and he is glorified. That that is the way that the light of the world works. That's what it means to be a people who have been brought into the light. Not that we'd be a people who hide the cracks, that hide the brokenness, but that we'd be a people who rejoice in the fact that those are the very places that our God delights to meet us. And this is so different from the way that our world talks about uh, brokenness because it tends to fall, tends to take us in either one of two directions. One is that we would hide our weaknesses that we would hide the ways that we've been broken, that we've been told those have no place here, that we should keep them in the corner. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying, no, those are the places that I want to show up. Think about the video, the way that they kind of go through the cracks and and get all the dirt out of them, blow, blow them, uh, blow them clean. It can be painful to have those things exposed, can't it? To have to look uh, at the cracks in our lives and our hearts. We fill them with so many other things trying to fix them ourselves. And part of what the grace of our Lord does is he comes and he, he clears them out and he says, no, I'm going to do a different work here. That's different than the way our world teaches us to think about our brokenness. But the other way that our world so often teaches us to think about the broken places in our lives is it says, no, your, Im- your imperfections themselves are what make you beautiful. So celebrate the, the imperfection. But it can almost make the imperfection itself, the brokenness itself, the thing that is the thing that's that's beautiful. And yet we know that that's that's not true. Because when the pot when a pot gets broken, uh, it's got to be put back together. This kintsugi, kintsugi art form only only works as the pot is being reassembled. It's not just left in the place of brokenness. And as it's being reassembled, something foreign to the object is mixed in to make it beautiful in the way that it comes back together. That what we desire is healing and wholeness. Not to celebrate those imperfections and to be content with the fact that they exist, but to ask and to beg the Lord, Lord, would you show up and do something here? 
That's why this story gives us hope in the way that our world doesn't. It doesn't say just celebrate those places that you're broken and learn to live with them. No, it says believe that actually those are the places that Jesus wants to, to meet you and bring healing into your life. This isn't about uh, tying a bow on things and pretending like Jesus has solved all of our problems in all the ways we would like him to. That often, uh, what I want, when I say, Jesus, would you come into these broken places in my life? Lord, would you meet me in my anxiety? What I want Jesus to do is to take the anxiety away. When I say, Jesus, will you heal me? Uh, my expectation is that he will do what he did for this man and it'll be my blindness will be gone. My hurt will be gone. The things that I wish were different about me would just be gone. And sometimes Jesus does that. But sometimes he doesn't. And instead what he does is he meets us in those places, that he strengthens us in those places, that he brings beauty in those places by giving us perseverance and endurance, by building our character to look more like him in those places. So when we think about our stories, when we're sharing our stories about the, the cracks, the brokenness, the weakness in our lives, that what we're saying is uh, not, yes, I, I struggle with anxiety or, or I wrestle with this, but God is faithful in a way that disqualifies all that brokenness. No, what we say is and, and in the midst of it, God is faithful. We're not tying a bow on it, pretending like it hasn't happened, pretending like it's all been, all been perfectly healed. What we're saying is, and in the midst of those things, God is faithful. And in the midst of those things, God is working. It's true. He is. In those places, in those broken places, what our Jesus desires to do is to bring life. And what blows my mind is that he asks us, he commands us to participate with that work of, of becoming works of art in our own lives. He brings us into the work that he's doing. That's what I think this whole mud situation is about. What he tells the disciples is we must work the works of him who sent me while it's day, which is while Jesus is present with them physically. He says night is coming when no one can work. And what he's referring to is that moment when the light of the world is extinguished. When he's crucified and put in a tomb. He says, no one can work then. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And yet what we know is that this Jesus who is the light of the world is also the resurrection and the life. And that though uh, for a moment the light was extinguished, that it was raised again. And that what scripture promises us is that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in you. That promise always blows my mind. Does it blow your mind? That the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in you and in your life. And the agenda of that power, the agenda of the Holy Spirit in your life is to bring uh, healing and beauty and restoration into the very in the places that you crave it most desperately. And the call to us is that we would participate with that. See, in all of these other stories we've been studying about when Jesus heals people, almost, almost as a rule, those people are crying out for Jesus' healing. 
right? They're coming to Jesus for healing. They're saying, Jesus, please heal me. And what he, what he often says is, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. But this man has not been crying out for Jesus to heal him. This whole discussion has been happening to the side of him. Right? The disciples are asking, hey, who sent that man over there? His parents. They're all talking about him. And Jesus enters into his story and connects with him. And by, by putting mud on his eyes that he has to wash, what he has to do is participate with the faith that Jesus has brought to him. He's got to step out in obedience. That's what he chooses to do, to participate in this healing that Jesus is bringing into his life. And participate with the power that Jesus is bringing into his life. And for me, I think for us, that's a very encouraging reality because so often we are asking uh, the exact same question as the disciples, aren't we? Who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? When we look at the brokenness in our own lives, we say, whose fault is it? Did I, this, did, did I do this to myself or did my parents do it to me? And we, we can all talk for hours about those things, can't we? What I did and what my parents did to me. And, and there, there are ways that when the light of the world comes into our lives, he illuminates our past. That's true. He brings perspective on our past. That's true. What he also does is he brings power into our present. Because there are times where I am tired of talking about why I am the way that I am. Do you ever get tired of that? I'll ask this one for real, right? Do you ever get tired of talking about why you are the way you are and just want things to be different? Yes. And the promise of this passage is that there, Jesus brings power into our present that there is hope that the way that we are can be different, that we can be changed. In fact, there's a promise there that we are all being changed. And understanding our past, having perspective on it, can be a piece of that, yes. But it's a piece of it so that the work of God can be displayed in us as we actually experience change in our lives. That is good news. That we're invited to participate and live out of that power that's been brought into our lives. You know, what does that look like? Well, it looks like a lot of different things. <laughs> it looks like a lot of different things depending on what your situation is, right? The places that you're crying out to be met and to receive power, to have the power of God working in you and your brokenness. I will tell you in my own life some of the things that it has looked like is that when I open my eyes in the morning and what I feel is afraid, that what I'm challenged to do is to choose something different. To remember that it's not my fear that defines who I am anymore. And that what Jesus has said to me is, you have a different identity now that your fear doesn't have to define you and your fear of the fear doesn't have to define you. You can remember, you can remember something different. That's an active process of reminding myself what is true and that when I forget what's true, that I have to ask someone else to remind me what's true. That's a hard work that participating with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in those broken places can be so difficult for us. And yet the promise is that as as we show up there that his power and his grace for us is even stronger and is meeting us there and is changing us. It's the work that he's inviting us into together in our own lives and then out into the world.
But the power that was at work at Christ, in, at work in Christ, raising him from the dead, is the same power that's at work in you. In the broken places in your own life, bringing beauty. And that's at work in us and through us out into our world. Pray with me. Father, we, we praise you and thank you, Lord, that you are the light of the world and that you've sent your son, the light of the world, Jesus, in, into our world, uh, that you've illuminated us, uh, our hearts, Lord, through the Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would be bringing healing into our lives. Jesus, that in the broken, uh, in the cracked places, Lord, in the midst of our weaknesses, the places that we're crying out for you, we ask even in our worship of you this morning that you would be meeting us. Lord, that you'd be waking us up to your immense love for us, your desire to bring us life. Uh, Lord, would you uh, be gentle with us as you expose those places in in our hearts? Uh, Lord, and as you whisper hope and encouragement to us, uh, that you would give us a taste this morning, Lord, of the freedom that comes from experiencing the power that is at work through your Holy Spirit in our present. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.